So you don't have to be Jewish to attend the Passover, is that right? Get some of the boys from Brooklyn over there. Absolutely. Is this Passover? <laughs> you want to do the talk tonight? My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, just want to uh, let everyone know Jordan was married, just back from his vacation. And, uh, so that's good stuff. The other reason I bring it up is because I was telling him before the meeting it was him and a couple other guys uh, that I knew when they were first getting sober. And I looked at pictures of their uh, wedding uh, party thing in the tuxedos. And uh, I called Marion over, and I was looking at it on this website. And uh, I says, uh, these three guys, when I met them, should have been dead. And uh, one's getting married, two others in, a, in the bridal party uh, suited up and looking like sober gentlemen. So it was, uh, it made me cry. It was, it was a thrill to, to see that, um, because we know people when they first walk in and what happens to them as a result of this place called Alcoholics Anonymous, so uh, congratulations. Um, I had a really interesting weekend. Uh, this past weekend, I was uh, in a town called Lafayette, Louisiana, and um, to my surprise, uh, when I got there and uh, was at the registration desk and um, getting my badge and stuff, I uh, get a tap on the shoulder, and it was my great-grand sponsor, a guy by the name of Gary Brown, who sponsored me for about a year and a half, um, way back when, when things in my life were uh, kind of rough. And um, it was a thrill for me to get a hug like he gave me and a peck on the cheek from my great-grand sponsor, um, who's sober about 50-something years now, and is uh, an icon uh, in the Midwest. Um, just he's, he's done the deal. He's one of the guys responsible for a lot of you guys here, fellowship of the spirits floating around the country. He's the spearhead of the first one out in Colorado, but doesn't tell anyone about it. A uh, man who walks with great humility. So it was a thrill for me to be around him and his uh, uh, folks who were sober around his age, 45 and 50 years sober, real good old timers. And uh, another guy named Bobby B. from Lafayette. These are all old-timers in the book. And sometimes we go to AA meetings and we don't see the real old-timers who are in the book. We see a lot of the young folks who are in the book. Uh, but these guys are big book monsters and, and, and but walked with a lot of humility. And for me, I was like a new kid on the block uh, with my elders. And it's a, it was a treat for me to be around that stuff and um, uh, got to listen to some of them share and, and have some coffee with them. So I'm kind of coming off of this, this just fabulous weekend of a kid walking through Toys R Us. That's how I felt. It was just the pickings, and I just let them talk. I just sat there like a little student and just let them share their life experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what I get to do is uh, share that with others and uh, kind of relight the flame a little bit. Gary Brown was sponsored by a gentleman named Paul Martin out of uh, Chicago, and Paul Martin was sponsored by Dr. Bob. And so I was able to touch my lineage when I'm around Gary B., and Bobby B. and Tom Yule and some of these other guys. It's a real treat for me to be a part of that. I have a responsibility today uh, that's been handed down to me uh, from my teachers, and that's not to water down the message, give away a gobbled message, give away a middle-of-the-road message. And I don't know if I could do a good job of that or not, but that's certainly my intent. And sometimes when we're carrying this message in a big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and we shared about this over the weekend, you will be revered and reviled in the same meeting, sometimes by the same people, depending on the slant of the talk. And we talked about meeting etiquette and how meetings should be treated as sacred, as they did way back when. So I'm grateful to be a part of that, have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to pass on this message and not put anything before what's in the big book, certainly not put anything before this power called God, practicing fidelity to God, practicing fidelity to my, my loyalty to Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, it's the only game in town. 
there was a time in my life where I had other things more important than AA, and I kept getting loaded. And in 1988, when uh, uh, the power call God separated me from alcohol for the last time, I signed up as a journeyman on day one. I had no idea what I was in for. And it's about almost 26 years later that I'm still in this deal and still uh, uh, searching, still seeking, still hungry for uh, this message and the people who pass it on and are always approaching this with uh, the mind of a student, the beginner's mind, regardless of how long I'm sober. You can't teach an expert anything. So I approach this with the beginner's mind, open and willing to be changed. And sometimes the change doesn't feel good. Uh, sometimes it's, it's simple to change. You want to change. There's things hitting you and you want to just get rid of it, but not temporarily for good, permanently. And sometimes change is very, very uncomfortable because of the archway we're walking through. There's a squeezing. There's a narrow gate that we're going to pass. And 6 and 7 talks about that. Actually, 4 through 9 does it. 6 and 7 certainly takes what's left of 5 and squeezes it some more. But the one who's doing the squeezing to mold us out of this, this lump of clay is God. And so no matter how many times I'm pushed uh, to the edge and changed once again, as uncomfortable as it feels, doing the things I don't want to do, doing the things I'm not even sure if they're going to work, I chop wood and carry wood and let God do what God's going to do. And so that's how I get here tonight. The process of recovery, um, although being recovered and being in the sunlight of the Spirit is certainly greater than using, certainly greater than a newcomer trying to find your way around AA without a GPS, um, but the process of recovery can be really uncomfortable at times. The belief system is, well, I'm sober 20 years, I'm in the big book, and everything is great, I'll hit Powerball, get the relationship, get a new car, and everything, I'm going to whistle down the block, and sometimes it's just the opposite. There's a lot of unknownness. I don't even know if that's a word. I just invented it. There's a lot of uh, uh, mysteriousness. There's a lot of uncertainty when we walk this because for me, I've experienced things on this path that I never knew were coming at me and asked to uh, uh, take these leaps in recovery. And I found that there is no such thing as a leap of faith. It just feels like it's a leap. And when we enter the world of the spirit in steps 10 and 11, you can't do that with a, a cognitive mind. You can't think your way into the world of the spirit. You can't size it up. It's not logical, but we certainly enter it with an awakened spirit. That comes by way of four through nine. I mean, I can make meetings till the cows come home. I can sit 90 meetings a night. I can make 300 meetings in 90 days. And I may be just a little bit better than when I walked in. Not necessarily because of the meetings as as they are. It's because I'm not drinking for 90 days. And I start to physically heal. I physically look better. I'm putting on weight. I'm even bathing and eating regularly. So physically, it looks like I've gotten better. But spiritually, I can be just as bankrupt or worse than when I was drinking. I can become very unpredictable. When I'm drunk, I'm not looking at 13-step anyone. I'm drunk. Just put me in a corner till I pass out. But for some of us, when we're, when we're sober and not drinking, we become predators. We become dangerous. Fear shows up. We used to drink the fear away. Suddenly I got fear. I got all these resentments. I don't know where they came from. Defects of character are driving me, and I worship them, and I defend them, and I protect them. And so what happens is I hit a wall and I need another drink. Dishonesty is a regular occurrence in my life, and as long as I don't get caught, dishonesty is okay. When I get caught, I'm sorry. So the process of recovery is getting put through this really narrow archway. Our book talks about passing through the archway a free man or woman at last. It's interesting that they say uh, uh, at last because the way I interpret that and the way I've been shown is that there were many things I tried to do, even in AA, that I was looking to get some sort of freedom, and it came maybe in a relationship or money or different things, and I felt freedom for a little bit. I felt some relief for a little bit, but I wasn't free at last. At last means I've arrived at a place of freedom, and that can be permanent. Always searching, always looking to get some sort of relief, and I will tell you that the process of recovery will not give you relief. Going to a meeting will give me relief. Sitting with a couple of folks in a diner will give me relief and talking about my tales of woe. AA does not offer relief. What AA offers is freedom. There's a big difference between relief and freedom, and that's been my experience. When I was first uh, coming to Alcoholics Anonymous um, in 1988, my first time... Uh, 
going through the work and my last time drinking. My first six months was kind of upside down, and I run to a meeting to get some relief. You know, I talk to the old timers, I get some relief, and there's that, that uh, uh, feeling really good when I left the meeting, the camaraderie of the fellowship, pats on the back and hugs, good to see you, and come back tomorrow, and then you get to the parking lot and it starts all over again till the next meeting. So I got relief for an hour. And I run to the next meeting. But what AA will offer, what God is giving us in abundance is freedom. And that's my goal, to experience freedom in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I'm always puzzled at um, why I waited so long during my first six months in AA and why so many of us wait so long in AA to get busy in our big book get busy with prayer get busy developing a life of prayer and meditation to get busy uh, having a worship with a God of our understanding a lot of us have contemporary investigation we get real comfortable in here you know there's no waves in my life so that means everything must be good not knowing there's a time bomb of ticking underneath me and at any moment boom and I'm living all over page 52 sometimes very blank and you can see and sometimes it's subtle it's really difficult for me to be still when I got a lot of stuff percolating underneath the surface. Bottles are just a symbol. Alcohol or any other substance is a symbol of a greater problem. I didn't understand that when I was relapsing all the time. I figured if I just didn't drink, I'm great. But what happens when they remove the drink from me in the process of a detox or a treatment center or perhaps drying out in AA? Well, we removed the obvious problem. Joe's not using drugs and Joe's not drinking. But now what? And our book says we got to get down to causes and conditions. And if I don't, that stuff's going to rise to the surface. Life becomes unmanageable. Uh, life becomes uh, untreated. I become a danger to other people. I start to infect people. I can't live this life without any medication in me. So what do I do? I need relief. I go to a drink because meetings aren't working. So when I complete the first five steps, what I'm left of is the, the, the nuggets out of step five in six and seven. And there's two paragraphs in six and seven. And a lot of folks blow right past them. It's only two paragraphs. How important could they be? I wonder what the 12 steps would look like if we remove six and seven, if we remove those two paragraphs. And what Bill did uh, in his divine inspiration was pretty much split six and seven, like he did four and five, like he did eight and nine, like he did 10 and 11. He split them because he knew people like me were coming in and I was going to try to find a little loophole somewhere. Oh, he didn't say this. That means I can do it. So he split them. Get ready. Let go in six and seven. And so I have to acquire a better attitude of willingness when I'm hitting six Pray for the willingness to let these things go. God better take them because if he don't deal with my defects, my defects will deal with me. And it's all preparation. It's priming the pump, getting us ready to go out for the first time and take responsibility and show finally some accountability for what we've done, what I've done, all the harms caused to others, and there were a lot. And it shouldn't be a contest of who harmed more. Who did greater things out there? Who harmed more people? That's not the point. The point is I have a list of people I've harmed, and I need to go back to them. I need to be willing in step eight to hit every single person on that list, which came out of my fourth step. I was talking to some guys uh, this morning about this. We look at our fourth column in step four. That's very tangible, where we're selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. That's very tangible. The first three columns in step four, based on my illusions and delusions about life. Even though Joe did this to me in column two and it hurt, interfered, or threatened me in column three, it's all based on old belief system. Why I'm so angry with you? Because I'm playing God. But column four, rubber hits the road. It's what I've done. Where was selfish? That's tangible. Where was dishonest? That's tangible. Self-seeking and frightened. You could even see that. And that's why I start to harm people. 
What am I going to do about that? That's my setup, my, my beginning to take a look at harm's cause to others. And now I do some other work in five. I take a look at six and seven. I release all these defects. And the great assignment we would do is release the defects and look at the opposite and thank God for the opposites. And God will do what God's going to do with us in six and seven. It really is just an on-my-knees surrender. And God, you mold me the way you want because I don't know what's good for me and I don't know what's killing me. The booze is off my back now. Now I got life problems. Now I got me problems. I got defect problems. Interesting thing about defects of character, I will say you have the defect. Oh boy, it's really got you, and I don't like what you're doing. When it comes to me, I make an excuse. You need to suit up and show up. You need to be pristine. But for me, I give myself some wiggle room because I'm me and I'm Moses. I'm different. Those things like those kill us. That's why sponsorship is so vital, not just important. It's vital that we have a sponsor who's on us and calling us on that stuff because I couldn't see myself going sideways. I co-sign my own nonsense. A little dishonest, so it's a little dishonest, a lot. A little vengefulness, it's okay. You would do it too. But if our sponsees did that, we'd be all over them. But for me, it's a little bit different. You know, I can drink 65 Red Bulls a day. It's really okay, even though I'm like this all day long. <laughs> you know, it's okay. And a little weed on the side on the weekends. I mean, I'm not drinking, so what? Make sure my sponsees doing a little marijuana maintenance. Won't hurt anyone. After all, it is natural and it's legal now. Right? We do things like this. I know it sounds extreme, but we do things like that. I'm gripped in fear. I can't tell anyone why, because I'm fearful of what you're going to think. More fear. And what I've done, Mom, is I start to worship these defects of character. As ludicrous as that sounds, exactly what we do, because we keep paying homage to them. We, God forbid, we should go to God to have them removed or tell someone this is what's going on with me. We honor them. And we come in with these all false belief systems based on uh, uh, sponsored people, and they throw religion at me. This one I love. They were drinking and drugging and sleeping around and lying and cheating and stealing. So let me come and tell you with 30 days. I have religious beliefs. I can't, I can't go to a meeting on Saturday or Sunday because I'm supposed to be somewhere else. Really? And if I drop a crack rock on the floor, what are you going to do then? Right? It's bizarre some of the stuff we come up with. So it's some of the many, any lengths that I had to go to. And I got challenged, my own belief systems about everything. And little by slowly, as I kind of closed my eyes and held on to my sponsor's hand, and I landed on the other side of the archway, I realized what a liar I was, how delusional I was, claiming belief systems that don't even work anymore. I was just afraid of the unknown. And spiritual growth doesn't happen until I step into what looks like the unknown. And I go from a place of knowing, tangible, this is my life, it's a mess, but I know it, into a place of the unknown. It's very frightening for me and many of us to find out that we can be ripped away of all the defects of character and perhaps even in my brokenness stand somewhat pristine and be one with spirit. You know why it's so frightening? Because suddenly I'm responsible for my behavior now. It's easy to cop to, I'm deaf, dumb, and blind, I'm sick, so I make mistakes, I'll stop the big book next week. One of the things about recovery and getting recovered is there's no more excuses for my behavior or my language or my words or what I'm doing. And one of the things about getting recovered that will scare a lot of people away is now I might have to sponsor someone and be accountable and responsible for this person's life. I'd rather just not you can go to meetings and I'm sick, I'm suffering, and, you know, I'm an alcoholic, this is what I do. Nonsense. When I got 30 days, I can cop to that. My big book talks about living joyous, happy, and free. Now, I'm very clear, I'm broken on the inside somewhere. I think I said a couple of weeks ago, my sponsor says, Pete, you're on a horse and you're riding backwards, you're never going to face forward. Face it. That's it. I'm broken. And there's a lot of places in this book that talks about that and another big book that talks about that stuff. We're flawed. I'm flawed. Now, that might not be for you, but I speak for myself. I'm clear I'm flawed in a lot of ways, but it's only with God's hand that he's going to get the clay and put it back together as he sees fit. 
Six and seven talks about the good and the bad. What I think is good for me might be killing me. What I think is bad isn't so bad. God just got to tweak it. All the shaping for me to go out in eight, preparation for nine. And I have found out all these defects are driven by fear. And if I don't turn to God in 6 and 7 for these defects, how could I possibly go out and make amends, those difficult amends, when defects and fear still got me? I'm going to wait till next week, next month. I'll conveniently forget. It's not that important. They don't remember it anyway. It's all fear and insecurity. My ego has gotten bigger. What will they think of me? They're going to throw me out of their office. I'm afraid to go do this. It's not that important. I'm comfortable. Why upset the apple cart? All this kind of delusional thinking. And at some point, I get drunk. That's what I do. And I need to seek this power the desperation for drowning man, which requires some things of me to do. And that's some of the, any lens, go to some of the extremes. But again, if I compare to those extremes that I've been asked to go to or been moved to go to compared to using, it's like kissing a newborn on the cheek. There's, it doesn't even compare. My, my conveniences have been interrupted because of this amends. My conveniences have been interrupted because my sponsor said to pray twice a day or write some inventory. I'm tired at night. If I was using, was there such thing of being tired? I'd snap up out of bed, sick as a dog, or get up off the floor in a hallway and go panhandle. No food in me for two days, no bathing for three or four days, but I had enough for me to go chase the drink. Suddenly I come into AA, <clears throat> and I'm tired, i got to work tomorrow. i got things, i got to wash my car, then I'll go right inventory. It's bizarre what we do. It's all the illness trickling back, and then one day, bang. If I'm not constantly turning my life over to God, the illness will take it right back. And he's not going to come invited either. It's an uninvited guest. Little things. We take a look at how am I dressing up for a meeting when I go speak? How am I dressing up for a meeting in period? What are my reasons for being at an AA meeting? Looking for a date or am I looking to get well? Right. How am I doing? How am I treating the place that's pumping blood into me every single day? How am I doing with that? And this power called God, who's giving me another day of breathing and sobriety, Am I paying respects back and saying thank you in the morning and thank you at night? Or i got to do other things and I'll get to God at some point today. It's one of the 10,000 other things i got to do during that day. This process of recovery demands a lot. There are requirements. Or I can just go to meetings, hang around, and see what happens. And some of the men I was around this weekend are living with strict spiritual disciplines. That's why they are who they are. That's why they're sober as long as they are. That's why Gary's still sponsoring so many people. That's why Gary looks so vibrant at his age. They all do. Those are my heroes. We could talk to a guy with 50 plus years about inventory. He'll go right to the third and fourth column. I want to be like that. Those are my heroes, spiritual giants, gurus in AA. So I finished this work in 6 and 7. When I say finish, finish that piece of work because we're going to revisit the steps hopefully at least once a year to experience further depth of self for successful living, to enhance the experience with God because the ego will reemerge, start to show up in different areas. How do I know the ego is reemerging? How much contempt am I feeling during a big book meeting? How much... Uh, uncomfortability am I experiencing when someone talks about God in AA meeting? It might be a little different God than me, a little different spin on the big book. And I start getting defensive, uh, full of contempt, a little angry, a little disturbed, a little agitated. That's all my ego flourishing. When I was uh, new to AA, my first uh, handful of years in here, my first sponsor took me to the work one time. He's one of those guys, go to the work one time, and that is it, live in 10, 11, 12, forever. Now, for some folks, that works great. I'm not here to change him. But I found after a few years of doing that, some uncomfortability. I called it flatlining. I was doing all the work I was supposed to do, praying like I was supposed to, sponsoring a ton of guys, but something wasn't right. And Paul Martin talked about this, where the going to the work more than once started. And what he told me was, what they don't share in some of the stories, a lot of our early, really early members, after about five years of sobriety, start getting uncomfortable. 
They went through the work, had an experience sponsoring people. But after about five years or so, he says, him included, were getting uncomfortable. Fear was starting to show up. Resentment was starting to show up. They're just missing something. And it came when one of his guys were coming over to share a fifth step. He prayed, and he had this thought of, I'll write some inventory and share it with the guy I'm sponsoring. And they swapped inventory. And he took a look at six and seven, saw some amends to be made, made the amends, and got rocketed again. He says, go through the work more than one time. So after a handful of years of being in here, I had a new sponsor who says, we're going to revisit the first nine proposals. And man, oh man, I had so much contempt prior to investigation for people who did that till I got to the other side of the fence and saw it was paradise, how great it was. So hopefully my suggestion would be, not an order, my suggestion would be revisit the work one through nine into 10, 11, and 12. How bad could it, how much could it hurt? Is it inconvenient? Tough. <laughs> it's more inconvenient having to go chase a drink or the, the other stuff at three o'clock in the morning or being laid up in a crack house for four days looking out of a peephole. That's fun. <laughs> They're out there. I know, I hear them. I see them, the shadows, you know, right? Writing a little inventory. An hour, two hours, done for freedom. I know because I did all of this stuff. So step eight talks about my preparation, my willingness. I've done some work in six and seven, and at the end of the seventh step prayer, there's, there's an amen. Note there are no amen after the third step, but there's an amen after seven. Why? Because it's been closed. That body of work of going and, and uncovering, discovering, and then discarding is completed for now. And what we need to do is get busy and going out there and fixing, repairing, not just an apology. Some of the amends will be, hey, I'm sorry, and you're about to make amends, that's it, you're done. But the intent is to repair what we've done. Make financial restitution where we've stolen. Take accountability for all my lies and dishonesty. And so step eight for me was preparation and going to every single person that was on my list. Now, the interesting thing, when we look in step four, we have a whole bunch of folks we pull out for our eight-step list. There's more. And the other thing I learned is, even though I have an eight-step list, say tonight, let's say, I create an eight-step list and I start tomorrow to make amends, that's not it because in a year or two from now, God might reveal more. I'm just not able to handle all of it just yet. But my job is to chop wood, carry wood, keep the ground fertile, go out and do what I have to do and be a messenger. And so we have a handful of amends, and my job was to pray to make amends to every single person on that list. Gangsters, drug dealers, whatever it was. I need to be willing to go. Even go to the courts and say, here I am. Our book talks about this. We must be willing to risk our reputation, it tells me. Usually it's the reputation we've created for ourselves. I created my own reputation. It can't be damaged. I might look bad. I'd rather have someone say, what a fool, because I went to you to make amends, than see me pass out on my front lawn and say, what a fool. One I'll die from, one I won't. Step nine tells me when to go and when not to go. So my job is to get ready, to get the engine running, the pump prime to go out and hit everyone on that list. And that's my prayer of willingness to go to any lens. It's interesting, after the third step prayer, there's uh, any lens. I mean, in, the, in how it works, there's an any lens. And in steps eight and nine, they throw any lens at us twice. Because what happens to a guy like me who's an alcoholic, I will make 10, 15, 20 amends out of maybe 50. And I'm starting to feel real good. The car is running. Everything's smooth. Everything's firing. I'm going back and sharing about all these amends. And I'm feeling quite good about making these amends. And the mind says, now you can rest a little bit. I know you got 30 or 40, but just hang out. Besides, those people from 20 years ago, and you don't really need to go there. Leave the past in the past, and it starts to talk. And our book says, hey, hold on. Any lengths, don't forget, to find a spiritual experience. Any lengths for victory over alcohol, it tells us. So I keep moving, and it's about praying for willingness to go see these folks. Step nine says not to go if I'm going to cause more harm to others. I'm not others. We get to, I get to walk with the armor of God into any, any, any cesspool, into any sordid spot to make amends, even when it looks a little tricky. A bunch of years ago, 
I had an immense, I was going through the work for, I don't know, it was the third or fourth time, and uh, this young lady came up on my, my harms list. I said, oh, my God, completely forgot about this one. So I got to make amends, but I don't know how to get in touch with this person. I have no idea. It's been a million years since I saw this person. And through a series of circumstances, I get her phone number. I pray, oh, my God, it's been so I make a phone call, and she knew immediately who I was as soon as I said hello. And I says, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, I need to make amends to you for some past behavior. And I started to make this amends, and we were talking, and um, she wanted to see me eyeball to eyeball, so I need to go. And I said to her, what can I do to make it right? And she said, I need money. It's okay. And so I go to meet this woman, and uh, it was in Brooklyn, in a, in a rough area she was living and I pulled up to the house, to the, it was the projects where she was living, actually. Uh, I pull up to the projects in somewhere in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And I make a prayer. It's okay, God, just give me the words to say and how to make this right, because this was delicate. Because I wasn't a gentleman when I was drinking. I was an animal. And this woman suffered from my, my stuff. And I got out, and she was standing there with a pit bull. I said, oh, boy, I really did damage here. <laughs> and um, I started to make the approach again. And I gave her her money, and I knew by looking at her, she was where I left off in 1988. She was really sick. And it was obviously drugs that was just, just ripping this woman apart. This was a woman who was pristine at one time, and she was frail and sick-looking, and it was sad. And it broke my heart. And I delicately offered her uh, some ways out, some 12-step fellowships, including AA, and some treatment ideas. And she would have none of it. She took her money. And I got back into my car. I made a prayer for her. I made a prayer of thank you. And I start to pull out. And I drove away. And I got up to the red light. And I noticed the cops, if you know anything about the projects, the cops drive through the projects, the undercovers and things like that. Right? The back, guys in the back row know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, and here comes a cop behind me. I didn't think much about it until I made a left turn, and they followed me, and their lights went on. I said, oh, what I do now? And they followed me, and they, they hit the horn. I pulled over, and they saw me talking to this woman. I'm making an amends and give her money. <laughs> So then thinking, I'm dirty. So I got John Wayne, one of the cops, and uh, this other cop was about three foot tall with a Napoleon complex. Uh, he was the one I had to worry about. And uh, license and registration. Now, prior to this amends, uh, I was living in Staten Island, and prior to this amends, I, I went to speak at a meeting in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Now I'm in Sheepshead Bay. So the logistics are crazy. So he looks at my driver's license and says, what are you doing here? I said, well, I was just in Sunset Park. I'm a member of AA to give a talk. He's, hold on. He's, you live in Staten Island, Sunset Park, Sheepshead Bay. He's, get out of the car. <laughs> and so I get out of the car. I remember my, my coin. I used to wear a coin around my neck for my sobriety time. And I'm trying to show him the coin. I tell him I'm a member of AA. I'm here to make amends. I'm here to do what's right and fix the past. He didn't want to have anything. He puts me against the car, and he starts rolling me and the car looking for stuff. I'm saying, okay, God, you know why I'm here. Here's in any lens. My sponsor knew. I was married at the time. My, my wife at the time knew exactly what I was doing. Everything was on board, except the cops didn't know this. And I'm telling them that there's a meeting called the Sheepshead Bay Group right by there and a Marine Park Group just a few blocks from there. And I had a lot of guys on the job go to these meetings. I said, I sponsored some of you guys on the job. They didn't want to hear anything. This one cop who was about 6 foot 12 pulls me over. 6 foot 12, that's a joke. <laughs> you better start serving coffee here. He says to me, is this that immense thing you guys do? I says, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. He says, keep your mouth shut. Let my sergeant do what he's got to do. In the meantime, the paddy wagon turns the corner. And they're on that thing, and they're talking back and forth, and there's a crowd. It looked like that show Bad Boys when they arrest people. And there's a crowd on Emmons, not Emmons, one of these avenues. Oh, my God. And the first thing I'm thinking of, if they pop me for no reason, I'm going to go home tonight, but the call is going to be made to someone. My old man's going to get this phone call, and he's going to say, here we go again. Foreign amends. Talk about any lens. I didn't have nice things in my head about my sponsor who encouraged me to go do this amends. 
Anyway, they cut me loose. Obviously, it's good. get out of here. And I got back in my car and I drove home. It's a funny story. But it's also an any length story. How we will get some heat. The plan was to go fix the past and make this right, even offer this young lady some help. The police had some other ideas. And I went through that uncomfortability, so what? The thing is, I was standing there, I was obviously clean and sober. They could have taken my car apart. They weren't going to find anything. They could have strip searched me. They weren't going to find anything. I was clean and sober, and I was there for the right reason. He knew, my sponsor knew, and my wife at the time knew. I was clean, figuratively and literally. And so I went home, and that was done. What I found after that was our book talks about how uh, the difficult amends seem to be the most beneficial. My spiritual condition got shot up with steroids after that night. I felt I can walk with God through fire and go out unharmed, which is exactly what can happen to us. What if I would have said, I'm not going there. I'm not going to the projects in Sheep's at Bay. I don't want to call this woman. It's a long time ago. I don't know if I'd be here. Maybe I would. I don't know if I'd be spiritually fit. Maybe I would. I'm not willing to toss the dice anymore with my life. So I get to suit up and show up. I get to, I get to, I get to and go with God. I clear it with God, clear it with a sponsor, clear it with the people around me, which is what step nine talks about. And they all gave me the green light and off I went. Because in step nine, it tells us, if I'm going to go make amends and it might harm some family, put them in jeopardy, I need to clear it with them first. Like before I go to the judge and surrender myself, maybe I got a little wifey poo at home that if they do take me, she has no income coming into the house. How is she going to support the house? I got to say, is this okay with you? If it's a bad, bad marriage, you say, yeah, go. <laughs> Most of them will say, what are we going to do if you do go in? And so I need to take that into consideration. I also have no right to put someone else at risk. If, if me and a couple of guys are doing some illegal things and I get sober, see the light, and I want to go fix it, but it might implicate them, I need to go to those guys and get their permission. If they say no, it's a no. But there's ways of putting back, I have found, into the universe what I took out. There were a lot of amends uh, that I, I couldn't make because it would cause more harm. I, I was a longshoreman for a lot of years. And there's some rough characters around that industry. When those folks look for you, they're not looking for you with Dunkin' Donuts and a cup of coffee. You're in trouble. <laughs> rough characters. And some of the illegal things I did, I knew if I just went in there and said, hey, listen, this is what I did, that there were going to be some serious implications, not for me only, but for a lot of other people who had families, who had jobs. They would be fired and maybe worse. At a sit in council, one of the things I've learned with step nine, to sit in council with the sponsor. Any great spiritual teacher always has a, a teacher. Sit in council, what do I do about this before I just go? And I was told you can't because a half a dozen other men are going to be in serious trouble. So what do I do about this time that I stole? What about this money I stole? What about these things that I stole? The things that fell, suddenly fell off a truck one day. Is I took a, a lump sum of money, sat with in meditation, and if it was $100 or $1,000, I took that money and start putting it back into the universe in the form of charities, very anonymously. And as far as work, with respect to work, I would show up early and leave late like we do in AA. I was a guy get paid on Wednesday and disappeared on Monday. And the old time was on a job at 5, 10 after 5, kid, go home. Is it okay to go home now? I knew it was time to go home, but I gave them the respect because I didn't in the past. I would do things like that. I wasn't just a lump on a log organ. What happened, I became a really good worker. Reliable, dependable, accountable, responsible. And I wouldn't take a penny to do anything illegal. I didn't steal anything. The interesting thing about amends 
is we go from here to here. We go from knowing to unknowing. We go from making amends for one reason and other areas of our life clear up. So I was going back to these amends. My first time through the work, I made over 200 direct approaches. I was doing like drive-by amends. And uh, a lot of these were longshoremen and truck drivers. Paying back the money, paying back the money, making the best deal possible if it was a lot of money. Not fearing bill collectors, telling them my condition. I follow the book. Hey, listen, I've been drinking and doing some bad things for a long time. Can I make a deal with you? It wasn't a deal that I liked, the deal that they liked, and little by slow, I got out of a lot of debt. But I was making uh, amends to these truck drivers and longshoremen, and um, my reputation was changing because my character had changed. And... Making financial amends, sometimes personal relationships improve. Making personal relationship amends and sometimes career changes, all for the better. We, we go to a place that we can't figure out with the mind. And what these men were doing, they would knock on a door where I was working or see me out in the field, and they would say, you still go for the cure, that's what they were called. You go to that double A place, you know. I mean, they were in the blind about Alcoholics Anonymous. And it sounded like this. I have a niece, I have a nephew, I have a son, I have a daughter who's suffering. Can you take them to the place you go to? And I took a lot of their sons and nephews to AA meetings in Brooklyn. And as, with respect to the woman, I would call a couple of the ladies in AA and say, listen, I got a prospect. You want to go get her? I don't know if any of those people are sober today, but that was my amends back. So here I was making financial amends and able to be of service and practice these principles there. One of the byproducts of amends is because our character changes, our reputation changes, and sometimes we're not even aware of it, but we start to uh, help people heal with this. We become credible. It's vital for me to experience the sunlight of the Spirit making amends. It's vital. And if I have outstanding amends that I could be making tonight without causing more harm, then why am I at this meeting? I should be out there making that amends. Have I had a, am I claiming to have a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps? As the result of these steps? Or as a result of steps nine and a half, nine and a quarter? I got a hundred amends to make. I made 25, but I'm good. I haven't had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I had a spiritual awakening as a result of some of the steps. I'm not completed with nine. Some amends, we can't go to those people directly, we make them indirectly. Give money to charities. Leave the women alone, guys. Direct them to the ladies. We're not a hawk anymore. We're gentlemen, spiritual uh, warriors, sober gentlemen. We practice these principles in all our affairs. And the only way I'm able to do that is by accessing this power called God, who's going to do it for me, because on my own power, I can't do that. Defects start to run the show again. I make a lot of excuses. Step nine is incredible what goes on, but we don't know until we experience If we really want to experience God, make amends, clean them up, talk about amends. One of the things I was encouraged by my sponsor, talk about amends. Talk about, because what will happen is, oh yeah, I just, there's an amends I have to make. There's an amends I have to make. One of the byproducts. I brought my family and my dad incredible amount of shame and embarrassment. My dad was a shop steward at the place I worked. I was known as Vic's kid. Vic's son, supposed to walk in his footsteps. Now, my dad wasn't on the wrong side of the law. He wasn't on the right side of the law. He was a street guy. But his reputation preceded him. It was impeccable. Head up, shoulder squared, no matter what was coming down the pike. And then I showed up. And they were like, what happened? You sure he's your son? <laughs> and my dad and my family was experiencing the hideous four horsemen because of me. Not I'm so powerful, but alcoholism levels everything in its path. But my alcoholic mind would say, well, it's not that bad, or who cares, or don't even think about people like that. We don't think about our dishonesty, how much it infects other people, how it has consequences, the domino effect, because it's all about me all the time. But one of the things about living this life, being moved to live this life, given the power to live this life, being guided to live this life, and into amends, when I was making amends uh, at my place of work, and God kept me there for about two years, I finished all the amends I was consciously aware of at the time, and a few months later, I found myself in the industry I work now. God says, you need to go back there to finish this work. When that work's complete, I'm moving you out. There's no more work for you to do here. I'm making amends, and uh, what came to me was uh, a couple of guys sat me down, and they would tell me things like this. 
Do you know how proud your old man is of you? My dad wouldn't say anything. I knew he'd let me in his office in the morning. He was a lot looser around me. I'd buy lunch instead of getting money for him to buy lunch, you know. He'd say, do me a favor, take my car up to the car wash. I'd go to the car wash and bring it right back, not disappear for six months. <laughs> with no fenders and hubcaps on it, right? right? <laughs> One time my dad, I think it was a test, he gave me a big wad of money. He says, do me a favor, hold on to this, I'm going to ask for it back. I said, what's, what's this? <laughs> so I put, I actually had a savings in a checking account. I deposited it. Well, about three, four months went by, he says, Code. Remember that thing I gave you? Couldn't say money. Remember that thing I said? He said, I need it. I said, okay. I came back in 20 minutes. He just looked at me like, this is really going on. <laughs> but these men would tell me that your old man is so proud of you. All he does is talk about you. And what they referred to is he beat it. That's how they call this. They didn't say he was recovered or in AA. He beat it. He beat this thing. And my old man's going to worry about me until God calls him home or me home first, whichever happens. That's what parents do. But he's worrying as a parent would worry for their children, not like he used to worry when the ambulance was driving by the house and it wasn't for me, is it him and that? Or the cops and things like that. Because of this, we get to heal other people. And we get to affect people that way. Those men that I worked with back then, they wanted, and I mean this, I'm not glorifying this or... or, or, or making it bigger than what it was. They wanted no part of me. In fact, the only reason why they would talk to me was out of respect to my dad. They wanted no part of me. I was a nuisance. I never showed up for work. I looked the part of a bum. They knew what I was doing. I was borrowing money. I was bad seed. While I'm walking this walk and I'm making amends and payday would come and I still have money from last payday on me. Then I started dating someone for a while and then I, they, they, they saw me get married and drive to work in a new car one time, and then buy a house. Only because I was practicing these principles in all my affairs, I was a responsible adult. Well, these same men who despise me, and I can't blame them, July 14th my belly button birthday, and I walked into work on July 14th one day, and they were all huddled on the other side of the yard, and they called me, hey, kid, come on over, come on over. And I walked into this, uh, looks like a toll booth that they worked out of on the yard. A little desk and things like that. And I walk in and they have this little donut cake and with a little candle in there. And about seven longshoremen start singing happy birthday. This was messy, right? <laughs> but they start singing happy birthday to me, right? And when that was done, they gave me a kiss on the cheek, a hug, we're proud of you, way to go. And, and I said, oh my God, how did this happen? These guys wanted no part of me, and they acknowledged my birthday. That doesn't go on in that environment. You don't show emotion. You don't shed a tear. Everyone's John Wayne, and that's what they did. And I realized these little gifts that God gives us about practicing these principles <clears throat> in all my affairs. I didn't make amends for a birthday cake or some pats on the back. Is what I had to do and what I got to do. Right? Practicing these principles in all our affairs and making amends. Um, Fast forward, uh, one amends took me uh, 17 years to make. I talk about two stories often when it comes to amends. 17 years and one I made just a couple of years ago. What about, I don't know, 24 years sobriety, whatever it was. 23 years sobriety. 17 years into recovery, does this person show up? Now, I had tried many attempts, writing letters, making phone calls, couldn't get in touch with this person. This place of work would tell me he's not here, he doesn't work here anymore, just a lot of things, unanswered letters. And um, I'm working in the treatment center business. I was do out on a marketing trip, and I drove from uh, um, way out to Long Island from where I lived. <coughs> New Jersey out to Amityville, Long Island. That's a long drive. And I planned the trip, and I planned to leave really early for traffic to get there for my scheduled appointment. And as luck would have it, I got there like two hours early. And my mind says, well, let's go to the diner, have a cup of tea, and hang out, and we'll go in. And the spirit says, no, go in now. And I wrestled with it. But when God moves you, God moves. I parked the truck, grabbed my duffel bag, and I walk in. As I'm walking into the, the, the reception office, who's walking out is this guy. We'll call him Joe, who I was supposed to make amends to. I've been searching for for 17 years. And he remembered me. 
And I said, I need to talk to you if that's okay. And he gave me some time. And I made my approach, which is the approach, and I made the amends. There's a difference between making an approach and the amends when it's completed. And it was just about my behavior, because what I did to this man was, he's, he was the physical fitness guy there. And they would take us from the unit across the yard about maybe 50 yards into this uh, gymnasium. A little fitness center, basketball court, and such. And while they were walking us, I beelined out to Sunrise Highway and took off. And he made chase. Uh, he's responsible for his patients. And what I found out when I came back, I was actually dragged back to treatment, um, that he almost lost his job over this. He was reprimanded for it. He was put on notice and all this other stuff. I didn't care. What do I care about this guy and his job? Until I got sober. And I realized, oh my God, it almost cost a man his career because of my shenanigans. So I had to go back and make it right, and I was glad he was still there. And we spoke a bit, and he was thrilled that I was in the business I am in, and uh, complimented me on the life I'm living. And he went back to work, and I went in there and, and waited for my appointment, and the whole day changed. I didn't care if I didn't even see anybody. The whole day changed. My life was wearing a world like a loose garment in the world, not of it. Everything changed. Everything was light. Everything was free. Another piece closed. Chapter closed. Just a couple of years ago, I, I, my first love, I'm going to get married, you know, the first love thing. Yeah. Alcohol became more important than her and her family. And fidelity went by the board as quick. And I broke her heart. Not because I'm some special guy, but I broke her heart. And she saw this, this young guy just blow up in front of her. And we lost touch. Through a series of circumstances, I get in touch with her. And the first thing she said to me is, oh, my God, I thought you were dead. What happened to you? We talk about you often. My family, my mom and dad, whatever happened to Peter, he's probably dead. He got really sick. And I was able to make an approach with her and then make an amends to her. And I says, what can I do to make it right? And she, I talked to her about AIDS, no clue about AIDS, don't even know what alcoholism is. I was able to tell her about the great things we do here. I said, what can I do to make it right? And she says, based on what you said, I've suspected this for a while. I think I married an alcoholic. And she told me about her husband. She says, if I talk to him, would you take him to the place you go to? And I told her, absolutely I would. She called me a couple of days later and says he would have none of it. He was insulted. They got into a big fight. She says, if ever he comes willing, can I call you? I said, absolutely. So can he. But that amends was completed. And that part of my life is closed. There's no loose ends. If I ever see somebody walking in the door, I don't have to go, oh, my God, I got to get out of here. I owe them money. Just one quick story and I'll close. We need to seek counsel. I needed to seek counsel. I was just out of the starting gate. I'm approaching step four. I'm in uh, 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 this workout place, and I see the cop who arrested me for the first time, my first pinch. What does my ego say? Let's go make amends for being such a bad seed. I go up to this guy who's working out. He's obviously off duty. And he's, hi, remember me? And he went up one side and down the other. I was shaking. I was so embarrassed. And I called my sponsor. I'll clean up the language. But he went up one side and down the other on me. So how dare you do that? You're not even in step four. You didn't see counsel. What you wanted was a pat on the back. So I never did that again. Because in a process of amends, we get to stand free. With no skeletons in the closet. Life's an open book. And really, there's nothing between me and God anymore. There could be. But right now there isn't, as long as I chop wood and carry water. I'm out of time. That's all I got. Thank you.